really appreciate the instruments sharing with us every week, or not every week, but when they do share. And I know they practice a lot in order to be able to come and to share their, their musical abilities with us. And it really enhances our worship time together when they do that. So I, I appreciate it, and I know I've seen the hair many Saturday mornings rehearsing in order to be able to share with us on Sundays. And so it's just another part of the body working together for the, for the growth of the whole, the whole body of Christ here at Foothill. You know, every generation, as they are growing up, have their challenges. This generation certainly has theirs. The disintegration of the family in America in these days is a challenge for those that are growing up. Add to that a, a growing worldwide recession, retraction in the labor markets that make it very difficult for people to find work and get themselves established. These are challenges that are facing this generation as they come of age. Beyond that, there, are, there is the long grinding war against Islamic radicalism. It kind of hangs over our shoulder and been going on for almost a decade now. These are the challenges of the younger generation coming of age. I remember the challenges when I was of those tender years as well. In fact, you could, you could summarize my growing up years and those of my contemporaries, I think, with three words. Woodstock, war, and Watergate. Woodstock, the 1969 music festival in which a half a million people gathered on a small farm in upstate New York really kind of launched the rock and roll revolution that swept throughout the country and the world and brought with it a whole new social fabric. You can think about war, that is the long war of Vietnam, almost Two decades, beginning in 1954, American involvement ending in 1973, and in 1975 when Saigon fell. I will never forget the college protests that ripped campuses from one end of this country to the other. Massive street protests going on, burning the American flag. Unbelievable disruption in the social fabric of this country in which myself and my contemporaries were growing up. And then shock upon shock, the overturning of a presidency. A sitting U.S. president forced to resign because of scandal in office, originating with some political dirty tricks at the Washington, in Washington at the Watergate Hotel complex that ultimately led to the demise of Richard Nixon in 1974. Those are interesting days, beloved. Days of rebellion, ripping across this country from one end to the other. You probably capture the spirit of those days in a bumper sticker that became quite popular in a little bit later in the 1970s called Question Authority. Question Authority. That bumper sticker and a graffiti form of it appeared 
from one end to the other of this great nation. It was a spirit of rebellion that fueled those days. And beloved, that spirit of rebellion continues even today. We live in this world as fallen sinners. And we have drunk of that spirit of rebellion as well. I am persuaded to the depth of my being that as we go through this 13th chapter in Paul's letter to the Romans, that if we will humble our hearts before the Word of God and listen to what He has to say to us, it will challenge us. It will challenge us. So I look forward to it. I want to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. How about you? I'm willing to be challenged. Are you? I look forward to our time together. So as we begin now in earnest this section, I want to just begin to consider Paul's command here in Romans chapter 13. And if you're not already there, open your Bible to Romans chapter 13, page 1137, if you're using a pew Bible. Paul's very specific and very direct command as he opens this chapter of his letter. A command to submit to the governing authorities. I want to begin to consider this command and the implications and ramifications of this very, very strong and countercultural statement. So that we might begin to take seriously our own civic duties. I'm calling this whole study of Romans 13 a manifesto for Christian citizenship. A manifesto for Christian citizenship. And as we laid out last time in kind of an overview, and I want to read the chapter again this morning, we'll do that for the next few weeks. We'll read this chapter until it becomes very familiar to us. But as we laid it out for you last week, there are really three aspects to this chapter. Chapter 13, the manifesto. The first is in verses 1 through 7 where Paul says we are to value our government. That is to be a Christian citizen, we need to value our government. Secondly, in verses 8 through 10, he says to us that we are to love our neighbor. A Christian citizen loves his neighbors. He loves his neighbor, really loves his neighbors. And then finally in verses 11 through 14, a Christian citizen restrains his flesh for the sake of his neighbors and the world in which he lives. Let's begin in verse 1, chapter 13. Value your government. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? 
Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, covenant, covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Before we turn and begin to look specifically at Paul's commandment laid out here in verse 1 of chapter 13, I think it would be profitable for us to turn back into the Old Testament and look briefly at the origin of human government. And I want to do this basically to put some foundations down underneath our feet as we begin to consider what he has to say. Because all that the Apostle Paul will say to us here presupposes all that has gone before in the Old Testament. And so I want to turn us way back, all the way back, to the book of Genesis, the book of Beginnings. So do that with me. Turn back into the beginning of your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, page 8. Page 8. Genesis chapter 9. And let's look first at the origin of human government. Understanding this will help to unlock what Paul has to say to us. 
Genesis chapter 9. I will take up the reading beginning in verse 3. Genesis 9, by the way, I guess I should say this, probably obvious, but I'll say it anyway, follows the flood. Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, Moses outlines for us the narrative of the flood in which Noah and his family were rescued on an ark that God commanded them to build. The world was wiped out, all living things destroyed, all that had the breath of life was extinguished in a great worldwide flood as God scoured the planet of evil and began through Noah and his three sons and their daughters to repopulate the planet. And thus, all of us here today in this room, we are all related, and that is, we are descendants of one of the three sons of Noah. So, bringing them off the ark... Noah begins to instruct them as to how to live in this new world, this post-flood world. And so the things that he says to them here are very important. They are very foundational. The life, even as we know it now, so many millennia removed from that great event. Verse 3, chapter 9. God says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God gives a number of very important statements here. In verse he makes a prohibition about the consumption of blood. A prohibition, by the way, that still stands to this day. That we are not to consume blood. That is, the life is in the blood. And to that prohibition, he now further states that it is the shedding of man's blood is an unlawful activity and it is to be dealt with seriously. Whether it be by an animal or by another man, you shall not kill a human being. You shall not do it. And in fact, if you are guilty of the taking of human life, you will forfeit your own life. Whether it be an animal or a man. To take the life of another human being is to forfeit your own life. God tells Noah. Notice the terminology, by the way, that he uses here in verse 5. Three times he says, I will require it. You see it in verse 5? Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man and from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. 
This little expression, I will require it, is a judicial expression. It's a judicial expression. And what it, what it means is that in all murders, God is the plaintiff. God is the plaintiff. He is the one who will press the charge. He is the one who will require the penalty of a murderer. It is ultimately God who is involved. Notice he says as well that it's from every man's brother I will require the life of man. You see it, verse 5 at the end? Pointing out that we are all, in that very general sense, brothers and sisters, descendants of Noah. We are related one to another. And so to unlawfully take another person's life, to, to snuff out that person's life, is to put yourself in opposition to God, and God will require that you forfeit your own life in return. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Here we have the institution of government. This is the means by which the taking of the life of a murderer can lawfully happen. It is not that that you, if someone were to murder your relative, you can go out on your own and just snuff their life out. That kind of unrestrained violence is what overtook the world and led to the flood in which God exterminated all life upon the planet. The wickedness became out of control. In order to hold in the wickedness of the human heart, God established government. And it is government that has this right of the sword, this right of execution. Prior to this time, it was the spirit of Lamech. You remember that character in Genesis chapter 4, right? If you so much as touch me, I will kill you. It was the spirit of revenge, the spirit of Lamech, that prevailed upon the earth prior to the flood. God says, by the way, that the wickedness of man's heart remains, right? The flood didn't cleanse that part of the earth. And so in order to stifle it, in order to hold it in, in order to suppress that kind of wickedness, God instituted here government. If God had not done this, by the way, violence would have soon overtaken the new world. We look around us now, and if, if you want a good illustration of what, of what the world is capable of without government, you only need to look at those parts of the world that have been without a lawful government for a period of time, and Somalia comes quickly to my mind. Two decades without a government. Anarchy prevailing. Strong men ruling. And the people oppressed ravaged. Man's heart is evil. Very evil. And it needs external restraint and constraint to hold that evil down. Government was given to do that. Verse 6, whoever shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. 
By the way, this is an argument here from the greater to the lesser. If government has the authority to execute, it has the authority to do the lesser functions below execution. Government also has a derived authority, therefore, to regulate behaviors that lead to violence and murder. Thus, it lies within the purview of government to outlaw and to punish things like robbery and kidnapping and adultery and rape and various property rights. Because these are the, are the instigators of murder. Beyond that, arguing from the greater to the lesser, if the government has the right to execute, the government also has the right to tax. It has the right to tax. And of course, we know Romans 13, 6 and 7, Paul says exactly that. Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. That's how the government supports itself. Beloved, government is not merely a social contract. It is not merely that a group of individuals get together and they say, you know what, I think it would be a really good idea if we were to, to write down on a document a, a pact of behavior. This is how we are going to live with each other. And it's, it's just between us. Not at all. Government is not a human idea. Government is a divine idea that has been stamped upon the creation. Now, how it works out in its various forms and fashions throughout human history, there is great flexibility. And some are better and some are far worse. But the fundamental idea of government is God's, instituted here following the flood. By the way, why is it wrong to murder someone? Verse 6. Because they are made in the image of God. To take another human life in an unlawful way, and obviously it is not a prohibition of taking any and every human life, for capital punishment is here given to the government. It is the unlawful taking of human life that is prohibited here, and the reason it is wrong and prohibited is because you are now snuffing out someone made in the image of God, and in fact you are directly assaulting God Himself by doing that. That makes God the plaintiff in all murder trials. And by the way, our laws, we understand this. We understand that murder is an offense against Society it is not just an individual offense. That's why in a murder trial, it is we the people who are the plaintiff of the trial. It is not the surviving family members do not bring suit in court. A murder trial is the citizens of the state of California who bring the charge against the murderer. Murder is a crime against society. It's a crime against society, and it is a crime against God. There is no justification for the unlawful taking of a human life. It is a direct assault upon God. Thus we see here the origin, the concept of human government stretching back in time beyond our memories to the ancient post-flood world. 
Now fast forward with me a couple of millennia back to Romans 13. And understand that the Apostle Paul is steeped in the Scriptures. This is the foundation, this is the presupposition that he is working from as he now begins to write and speak to the Christian believers of the first century and through them to us 20 centuries later. Verse 1. Submission is required. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Notice his statement here in verse 1 of Romans 13. Let every person... Notice he doesn't say Christians be in submission to the governing authorities. He says, let every person be in submission. Why is it every person must be in submission to the government? Why isn't it only a Christian obligation? The answer is because government was originated by God, Genesis 9, in the post-flood world, and therefore is imposed upon all humanity. Believing and unbelieving alike. By the way, just like marriage. Just like marriage. This is a statement of universal obligation. Let every single person be in subjection. This commandment does not result from our Christian conversion. It is not, before I came to know Jesus Christ, I was not obligated to be in submission to my government. But now that I have become a Christian, now I must be in submission to my government. That's not his argument. His argument is that every single person must be in submission to the governing authorities. But the, the process for a Christian who has become transformed in their thinking is to now understand why that's a good thing. And to embrace it with a desire to glorify God in doing so. It is the change of our attitude. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. When you go to a park, there are signs up that say, no littering, fine $200. Right? Are those signs there for Christians? Is that why those signs are put there? So that Christians won't litter? No, the signs are for everyone. It's a universal prohibition. But Christians don't need the threat of a fine, $200, in order to not litter. Christians don't litter because it's not right. And we have been transformed, and we are willing to submit to and embrace the authorities over us who have made this law. We don't need the fine. The unbelieving world needs the fine. Okay, Fines are for unbelievers. Violation of the carpool lane. $341 fine. That's not for me and that's not for you. That's for unbelievers. So the transformative process that occurs, Romans chapter 2, verse 2, is that we now no longer need the threat in order to obey. We embrace the concept and the laws because we've been transformed by Jesus Christ. Let every single person be in subjection to the governing authorities. What does it mean to be in subjection? What does it mean? Hupatasso is the Greek word. Hupatasso, it's a great word, and it's used all over the New Testament. The word means to line up under, 
to line up under, or maybe better said, to be under the authority of someone or something. To be under authority. For example, Luke chapter 251, it says that Jesus continued in subjection, same word, to his parents. He was under the authority of his parents. He lined up under his parents. Romans chapter 10, verse 20, it says the creation was subjected to futility because of Adam's fall. That is, the, the creation is under the authority of futility because of the fall of Adam. It is lined up under futility. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 16, it says that church members are to be subject to their leaders. They are to be under the authority of their leaders. Ephesians 5, 21. Believers are to be hupatasso, under the authority of the various authorities that have been placed in their lives, whether it be your, your boss, or in the case of a wife, your husband, or in the case of children, your parents. Young men, 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, are to be subject to their elders. They are to be under the authority of their elders. And then two other places the word is used that are very important for our discussion. 1 Peter chapter 2, so I'll turn you there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, pages, page 1212, 1212 in your few Bible, where it again said that believers are to be under the authority of human government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Submit yourself, as your Greek verb, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Interesting, isn't it? That Peter speaks of government in exactly the same terminology that the Apostle Paul does in Romans 13. Punishment of evildoers, the praise of those who do right. And by the way, Peter is writing at a time when the same evil Caesar is on the throne that Paul was writing Nero. Verse 15. Do this, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What Peter is saying to us here is that ignorant and foolish men see Christians as a threat to society and a threat to order. We serve a king who has a coming kingdom, amen? That could be threatening to secular authorities who have no understanding of what it is we're really talking about. And so by our submission to them, willing submission to them, we show them that we are not a danger to society. In fact, to be a Christian should make us the very best citizens of any country in which we find ourselves. Governmental leaders should love to have Christians, and lots of them, in their country. It makes their job of governing a whole lot easier. There's a lot less evil to suppress when there's a lot of Christians. Such is the will of God, Peter says. 
Back to the left to Titus, chapter 3, where Paul picks up the theme again there. He's writing to Titus. He's left him in Crete. He's told him to put things in order there. One of the things that Titus is supposed to instruct these believers in Crete. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, page 1194, if you're turning there. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Same kind of idea. Remind them, Titus, to be subject, to be hupatasso, to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient to them, to, to be under their authority, to line up under them. As believers, our obligation to our government is to submit to it. To submit to it. To be under its authority. That's true of every single person because God established government in Genesis 9. The added requirement for a Christian is to do it out of a desire to do it. Out of a transformed heart. To do it with a willingness. The happy spirit, if we could say it that way. Right? If you're raising children, you want them to obey you first time, every time, with a happy spirit, right? That's what we're shooting for in the raising of Christian children. That's what we as Christian adults, the attitude we are to have to those who are in governing authority over us. We are to obey them first time, every time, and with a happy spirit. That demonstrates a transformed mind. Now already, you and I can feel the conviction of those kind of words, can't we? Grumble, grumble, grumble. By the way, this, this kind of behavior is only possible by the transforming grace of God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just say it. Okay? This is not new law. Wow, we're out from under the Mosaic law. Now we're under some other new set of regulations that we can't do either. Wrong. Okay? This is the product of the transformation that occurs in the human heart when we have been set free by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saturate our minds and our hearts in the Word of God, it cleanses us, it washes us, it transforms us. It changes the way we view the world. It changes the way we think until we see things the way God sees them. And we love God and we want to please God. And thus, we begin to do things powered by His Spirit that dwells within us that bring glory to His name. Being good citizens glorifies God. Glorifies God. Now here in verse 1, Paul gives us a couple of reasons why we need to submit. Two reasons to submit here in verse 1. Notice second half of the verse. For there is no authority except from God. That means that he's supplying reasons to us. First reason, there is no authority except from God. Second reason, those which exist are established by God. Two reasons. Two reasons. First reason, all authority comes from a sovereign God. The authority to govern does not lie with men, it lies with God. That's an important thing to remember. 
Any authority that you or I would ever have is a derived authority. It comes from a sovereign God who has lent it to us. We sang a hymn earlier this morning, All that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. Right? We do not have life in ourselves. We borrow it from the living one. We do not have authority in ourselves. We have it on loan. We borrow it from the source of all authority, the sovereign God of the universe. He lends it to men. We are finite. We are dependent creatures. And thus we have no inherent authority at all. So any authority you have, whether it be in the church, whether it be in the business world, whether it be in the realm of government, whatever authority you have, it is not inherent to you. It is on loan to you. And it is ultimately on loan to you from God. And when we keep that in mind, it, it helps us to have balance as we exercise authority. A proper response for all those in authority, whether they be kings or anyone below the level of a king, is we are to humble our hearts before the Sovereign One, the One from whom all authority derives. Verse one again, there is no authority except from God. For example, Jesus in John 19 and verse 11, standing before a Pilate, Pilate says to him, Hey, I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. I have a lot of sovereign authority. I have enough authority to take your life, and you know what? No one will care. How does Jesus respond to him? Verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, any authority you have over me is a derived authority. It comes from God, the source, the sovereign source of all authority. Acts chapter 12, verse 23. Actually, let me just pick it up a little bit. Verse 20. The story of Herod. Acts chapter 12. We'll pick it up in verse 20. If you're turning in your few Bibles, page 1103. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So you get the scene here. Tyre and Sidon, they're coming before the king to, to honor him, to petition him, because they're dependent upon his, the food that is generated under Herod's realm. Verse 21, and on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, and by the way, the, the, the commentators tell us it was made of spun silver, so it was pretty good digs that he had on there. He put on his royal apparel and he took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, here's the point. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he died. Yuck. Right? Why? Why did God strike him down? 
Because he refused to acknowledge that his authority came from God, that he was not a God himself. Now we could go back into Daniel, right? Daniel chapter 4, and we have another more lengthy illustration of the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar, this is my kingdom that I have made with my own hand. If there's anybody great, it's me. And God comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says to him, the whole thing is going to be snatched away from you and for seven years you are going to eat grass like a cow. And at the end of seven years, when you finally acknowledge that all authority lies with God above and he lends it to men as he chooses, then your sanity will return to you. And indeed, that's the way it plays out. All authority comes from God. The first reason why we must submit to the authorities over us. Because in submission to the authorities over us, we are ultimately submitting to who? God. We're ultimately submitting to God. Second reason, back to Romans 13, verse 1. Second reason is God establishes governments. It's a little more specific statement. All authority comes from God, the sovereign God, and God establishes governments. Those which exist are established by God. Now, from a human perspective, rulers come to power by force or by popular election or by heredity, right? Those are typically the way that you come into leadership of a nation. You either have a coup and you take over, or it's some sort of a hereditary uh, uh, passing off of the throne from father to son, or you have some kind of popular election and you're brought to power. From a human perspective, that's how it happens. But the Bible tells us that really what happens behind the scenes is that it is God who establishes leadership and God who is the one who removes it again. We can see that. Let's turn to Daniel to see that. Go ahead back to Daniel chapter 2. Page 883, Daniel 2. Verse 21. Daniel 2.21. Daniel says, And it is he, God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Now in the context of Daniel, of course, we see that in the four successive empires. That God is the one who raises them up. God is the one who puts them down again. And Daniel paints out the history of the nation of Israel for us through those four kingdoms. But the point of the matter is that it is God that raises the leadership and it is God that puts it down again. We can see it again in Acts chapter 17. Paul's statement in Acts 17, page 1110. Paul is speaking to the philosophers of Greece there in Athens. He's preaching the gospel to them. He says, verse 26 of Acts 17, he's a very interesting statement. He says that he, God, made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And this is the point. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That is, God establishes the appointed times for nations. Nations rise to power 
and they rule for a time and then they sink again. The extent of their empire is determined by God. It used to be said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. That is no longer true. Okay? The British Empire has been eclipsed. We are now living in the days of the American Empire. There are some who think the American Empire is on its way to being eclipsed as well, and perhaps they are right. But it is God who raises the empires. It is God who determines the extent of the empire and its influence. And it is God ultimately who removes the empire again and raises another one in its place. God establishes governments. We have lots of illustrations of this in the scriptures. Clearly Nebuchadnezzar himself, spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, he's called my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord's servant. Jeremiah 25, verse 9. Cyrus, the Persian, is called, in Isaiah 45 and verse 1, my Messiah, my Messiah, my anointed one, my deliverer. And of course, Cyrus is the one who wrote the proclamation to allow Israel to return back to their promised land, to their homeland. Pharaoh, Romans chapter 9, verse 17, quoting Exodus, God speaks of Pharaoh and he says, I raised you up. Pharaoh. I brought you to the seat of power, Pharaoh, in order to accomplish my purposes in and through you. So it is God that raises governments. Therefore, beloved, it is God who has raised the government that is over us today. It is the result of a popular election, but it ultimately, in, in final sense, it is the result of the sovereign working of God. If I can just summarize all this in, in one point for you is we are to submit to our governments because they are established by God and in submitting to them we are submitting to God. Boil it all down in one sentence. I don't know why I took so long to say all that. <laughs> I could have just come up and read Romans 13, said that and sat down. But then they would have docked my pay. Submission to government is submission to God. It is a theological issue. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? This verse this morning. What do we do with it? It is easy, relatively easy at least, to to concur in an abstract in an abstract way that God raises governments, right? Of course. I mean, show of hands. How many believe God is sovereign? Yeah, that's what I like. Okay? Yeah, God, He's sovereign. God, He can do what He wants to do. Isn't that right? He's sovereign. Until His sovereignty intersects me. <laughs> then all of a sudden, the abstract concept of sovereignty is not so, not so funny anymore, not so pleasant. It can be downright painful. And so we agree to the sovereignty of God over government. We agree that God raises governments and God puts them down again. We're happy with all of that until we get a government we don't like. Or a local leader. By the way, I think there's an argument from the greater to the lesser here going on. Which is if God raises the king over us, then we can, we can derive the fact that God raises all the lesser rulers underneath the king. In fact, Peter says it. So what does that mean? That means that God raised the President of the United States over this country for the duration that he will remain in office. He also raised underneath him the Congress. 
It also means that he raised underneath him the judges. It also means that he raised underneath them local officials down to the local dog catcher and the clerk at the DMV. All right, that's where God's sovereignty starts to really bother us. <laughs> Isn't that true? Sure, I'll submit. You mean I got to stand in that line over there? That's long. I don't want to stand in that line. Beloved policemen are raised over us by the sovereign authority of God. All of these officials, and I'm going to take it one more. If your children are in public school, then the public school teacher and the administrators are in sovereign authority over you as long as your children remain in that school. They are part of the governmental system. We are to submit to them. We are to line up under them. Now I'm meddling, I know. Right? Because that's the way it is. It's fine in the abstract. It's when we get down to the personal, individual encounters with government that we're not so happy anymore. That's where the work of grace has to happen in our hearts. Understand that. That's the only way you'll stand at the window at City Hall waiting for a building permit to do something that you don't think is necessary to have a building permit to do. Let's just make it really practical. I don't have a building permit to do that. Who are they to tell me to do that? I do what I want to my house. Not if you're a Christian, you can't. With a, with a humble heart with a willing, submissive spirit made possible by the transforming grace of God, you stand in line, you go to the counter, and you present your application for a building permit to do something that you don't think you need a building permit to do, but the city says you do. That's how you have to do it. That's what it means to submit. And it can't be done. Well, a massive quantities of the grace of God coming in and transforming our thinking. Changing our hearts. Because deep down inside us, there's a massive spirit of rebellion. Massive. True heart submission requires an internal work of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the sign of regeneration. Secondly, and finally, 19, or excuse me, in 1835, biblical commentator Charles Hodge wrote the following, and I quote him, While government is of God, the form is of men. Close the quote. While government is of God, the form is of men. That's a very important insight in this whole discussion. We are not fatalists. We don't just sit here and say, well, whatever happens, it happens. It must be the will of the Lord, whatever. By the providence of God, beloved, we live in a day and an age and are on a place on this planet in which we have tremendous opportunity to have input into the governing authorities over us. That is unprecedented in the history of the human race. Credible opportunities. And we need to take advantage of it. We need to take advantage of it. What's going to happen on June 8th? 
There is a primary election on June 8th. You need to be registered to vote. I'll just say it that way. You need to be registered to vote. By the way, the last day to register is tomorrow. You go online to the state of California, you can download the forms, you still can register. If you are not, young people, I'm, the, I'm aiming this one mostly at the young because you need it aimed at you. Because you're not registered to vote and you need to be. You should be. You've been given an opportunity here. Take advantage of it. In November of this year, there will be congressional elections. Beloved, the outcome of these congressional elections is significant. The issues at stake are large. The implications of the outcomes of these elections are very, very, very significant to the Christian church and our opportunities to preach the gospel. We need to be engaged. We need to be involved. We're not telling people who to vote for. It's before God and your conscience that you need to make an intelligent decision. But you should vote. You should vote. God has given you this privilege. Use it. Use it. And by the sovereign will of God, He will raise into authority over us who He has determined will be there. And we will willingly and submissively and with a happy spirit <laughs> embrace the outcome of His sovereign will. That's how it works. When Paul wrote these words, by the way, to the believers of the first century, many of whom were slaves, those who were not slaves were the poor, basically. The thought of having input into the Caesar over them didn't even hit their radar screen. It was beyond them. It was, a, it was a notion unheard of, unthought of. We are the recipients of a great heritage, a great legacy that has gone before. As I told you last week, I am not here to arbitrate the American Revolution. Okay? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Was it lawful or not in light of Romans 13? I don't know. As I said last week, God alone will evaluate that. I used the word judge and I meant it in a neutral sense. God will judge what happened and he will reward or not. But here we are. Is that right? Here we are. We don't live then, we live now. So we need to live now. In light of the sovereignty of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are challenged by the words that you have for us this morning in your holy scriptures. Father, many of us have very strong opinions about 
how affairs should be run in this nation. Yet, O oh Lord, we are called to be in submission to our governing authorities, and by a work of grace, we are to be in humble and happy submission. We are to see our government as your good gift to us. And our Father, we cannot do that unless your grace transforms us. So as we close our time together, O oh Lord, that is our prayer. Pour out grace upon grace upon grace. Flood us, our Father. Transform our thinking. Change our hearts. Help us, O oh Lord, to be citizens of the United States of America in which those that are in authority over us would not fear us, would not despise us. But although they do not understand us, that they would welcome us as good citizens of the state. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to let you go as the instruments play.